Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. All right, critics, here we are with our 300th episode of Critical Q&A. And I could not be happier uh, as I sit here right now, 300 episodes or 299 down. <laughs> so many questions, so many answers. You'll see those coming out on the Critical Clips channel where I've been reposting individual clips of the uh, questions I have been asked. Many, many, many of them, not all of them. Uh, and not, you know, sort of uh, redundant ones when they've been, uh, when they've come up a couple times. But anyway, you will find, I think I've just crossed the four or 600 mark or something there. Anyway, there's a lot of clips videos you can check out there. Anyway, and uh, boy, what a ride this has been and will continue to be as we carry on here. I want to thank my Patreon supporters and recent signups, uh, Gina, Teresa, uh, Bruno. Thank you very much for signing up. Uh, for my um, support system there. We actually will be in the, we are in the process right now of uh, moving in the next couple of weeks. We're going to be changing apartments. So you will see a change here in how my studio space is set up uh, probably within the next month or so. Uh, so that'll be kind of exciting. And um, and yeah, moving in, you know, it's, it's, it's a little expensive, all that. So that's kind of fun. So anyway, if you want to support the show, support the channel, support our efforts, uh, then Patreon is the way to go with that or PayPal or whatever. Anyway, enough of those plugs. Uh, we have some uh, pretty interesting questions this week and including some flash answer questions. You guys definitely served me up some awesome ones. Uh, yeah, some of you more than others, you know who you are. And please do keep the flash answer questions coming too, as well as, of course, the questions that need longer form answers. Uh, let's see, is there anything else we need to cover? I hope you guys have checked out my podcast this weekend with Aaron Smith-Levin. We talked tur uh, turkey about Clearwater and offer a bit of a fresh perspective on that town and Scientology's influence in it. So I hope you guys will check that out. And I will just put a little reminder in here again that every Friday night we are doing Critical Conversations. And we had a really fun show this Friday. Melissa, my wife, and I sat here and we talked about higher powers and God belief and Scientology and various things that are happening there. And it's an exciting time. So you can uh, join us for those shows live right here. And you can call in and talk to us on Friday nights at 6 o'clock Denver time. Mountain Standard Time. All right, guys, let's get on with your questions now. Bruno, you've said what you think is good about Scientology, which is nothing that you cannot get somewhere else. The one thing that did get me interested in it was listening to Grant Cardone explaining how he was able to remove self-imposed barriers through Scientology. This is the end phenomena to becoming clear, I believe. Grant also says it helped him remove ideas and agreements that didn't make sense anymore for him. Can you explain how Scientology would help remove self-imposed barriers and what you think would be an alternative way to do it without Scientology? Your answer would mean a lot to me. Thank you. Hey, Bruno, thank you very much for asking me this question. And I'm only going to be able to answer, of course, in the most broad of terms, because I don't know you specifically or, you know, anyone um, is going to come at life, is going to come at the problems of life with their own problems, their own issues, their own personality, their own context, their own uh, acculturation, uh, et cetera. So I'm, so I'm going to really try to broad shoot this one. And I hope that this, what I say here is useful or, or helpful in some fashion. I was looking at, okay, well, what kind of advice could I give or what kind of help could I give that might help explain, um, you know, what Scientology is doing versus what would be what I think would be real help in the real world. So first off, let's say that let, let me first say that Scientology is not about um, a methodology that is going to actually work to remove self-imposed barriers except by accident. It might happen. It could happen. You could go into a Dianetics session or a Scientology session, go back in your life, recall things that have happened to you in this life. I'm not talking about past lives. I'm talking about this life. And reorient or restructure the causative agents and elements of your life. Relook at or review your responsibility for things in relation to your current view versus the view you had at the time. 
this is the source of, of most of the gains in Scientology, is a sort of a reassessment or reevaluation of earlier values, ethics, moral principles, ways you attacked or approached problems, ways you thought about yourself, ways you thought about other people. That, compared to now, and reviewing that and looking at that in a new unit of time, as they say in Scientology, in other words, from the present, you're and sort of removing... Um, you know, you could go through a process where you might sort of remove some hindsight bias or you might remove some um, some critical valuations that you're making of yourself in the past. And you might be able to see yourself now and see that, you know, you're that you're not impeded or barriered by those earlier decisions or ideas or contexts or moral philosophies or whatever. Uh, in other words, earlier decision making. Right. Um, and that's something that Scientology provides, but it's also something that psychology or therapy uh, provide, and also other things, too. And let me go down a little list of things that I've got for you here, okay? Because um, going clear is a fake, it's a faux therapy process that results in a pseudo-state. There is no, the state of clear is, a, is, is not a reality because the reactive mind is not a reality. It doesn't exist. It's Hubbard's construct, and it's a fairly fantastic one. It's a, it's a, it's a ludicrous one. I, I mean by fantastic, I mean fantastical as in ridiculous, as in the, the, uh, the theories and ideas about it are not, they're just not, they just don't hold any water. So, um, so, so the first thing to do is kind of remove from your thinking any ideas that Scientology has implanted there about what clear is, what auditing is, what you, who you are, because it puts it, you know, Scientology posits you are a Thetan or spiritual entity, well, maybe, but, um, you know, what we know for sure is that you are you. You are the, the, the sum of your views and education and culture and acculturation and, um, and the unique bit that is you. And, and we don't have an explanation for that yet. Maybe it's a spiritual explanation, but there's no there, the, the problem with that is this thing called evidence. We don't have any of that. So, you know, so spirituality is sort of this, this big, huge word that gets thrown around not really useful when the rubber meets the road. So let's talk about some things that are useful when the rubber meets the road. First off, in terms of removing self-imposed barriers to your life, one of the first and most uh, important points that I will uh, put out there is your health and your sleep and food, okay? You can't get anywhere, and you're certainly not going to be able to think rationally or critically or at your best Using the frontal lobes, in other words, right? If you are hungry all the time, tired, you know, sleep deprived, food deprived, uh, nutrient deprived, if you're in poor health, this will absolutely affect your mental health and your and how you think. So, um, because it's all part of the package, you see, it's not it's not like the mental health is just what goes on in your brain or your spirit or whatever. It's it's all of it. If I, you know, and the and the, the crude example I give here is if I take a hammer and hit you on the toe, I'm going to change how you think, right? So, um, and I'm going to change how you think for a while because you're going to have this broken toe now and it's going to mess with you and it's going to cause you pain and it's going to cause you a great deal of mental stress and trauma and anxiety, and it's going to be, it's going to change how you think, and it's going to change your worldview for a while. Really, it's that, it's that, you know, kind of simple. So anyway, so health, taking care of yourself, taking care of your body, these are important things. These are not, this is something that was absolutely not just uh, not known about in Scientology, or only given lip service in Scientology. It was actually, this was actually part of the control of Scientology is depriving us of good food and good sleep so that we can't think, can't operate well, and are constantly in this anxious, you know, sort of trauma-inducing uh, emergency state of operation. So, so again, you can kind of ignore Scientology's advice because they don't even practice what they preach. You know, they don't even, they don't even, what they give lip service to isn't even actually done when you get into what the staff and the Sea Org, for example, have to go through. Okay. Um, another one is having goals and purposes, okay? Having, uh, having clearly defined ideas about 
where you want to go, what you want to be doing, what do you enjoy doing? That's pretty much what you should be doing and making your life revolve around, you know, activities that are constructive, helpful, useful, positive, and will, um, you know, move your life forward in a, in a direction that you want it to be going in, right? This is important. Having, you know, having an aimless existence is, is going to affect your mental health. It's going to affect your these self-imposed barriers that you, that you discussed, right, or that you asked about. So, um, so that's kind of important. Now, obviously, I can't tell you what your goals or purposes should be. I'm merely saying that it's good to have them and it's good to put something out there, even if it's short term, uh, you know, it, or conversely, even if it's really long term and you don't know what you're doing in the short term, that's okay. You'll figure it out. You'll, you'll figure it out as you go if you have some mountain you're going towards, some direction. That's really important because um, not having that can be its own barrier. Um, having a support system. Okay, so support systems are really, really important. And by support, I don't just mean people around you who are going to pump you up, feed your ego, stroke your ego, tell you how great you are. That's not that's not necessarily a support system. A support system is, um, you know, true friends, true uh, liking, respect, admiration, you know, between you and them. Um, but also a willingness and an openness and a transparency to, you know, to say it, to say how it is, to say, you know, if you're screwing up, you're going to want to know about it. And you're going to want to have a support system of friends, family, people around you who are going to be willing to tell you that you are screwing up, not necessarily, you know, insulting you or, or putting you down, but being honest. Um, so if you don't have that, you can eat much more easily fool yourself or be fooled, um, by ego stroking, love bombing, et cetera. So you want to have a good solid support system around you. And, and that's a matter of how your initiative to create one, you know, you're going to be as valuable to other people as you're providing value, meaning, and purpose, you know, and, and, uh, and some kind of something to other people. And then they'll be valuable and important and useful to you. I mean, it's, it's you know, you don't have to look at it in that utilitarian way, but you know what I mean. You can't just be an anchor on everybody and expect them to keep, you know, keep you around for no good reason. That's kind of my point, right? So it's a give and a take. You know, you help other people. They help you. That's kind of how it should be. Um, and you want to build a support system that is that. And it's not necessarily easy. It doesn't necessarily go happen overnight. Um, but it's, I think, it's a vital part of having the kind of, um, you know, solution you're, you're talking about here, the things, your solutions you're looking for involve, you know, having good relationships with other people around you. Um, okay, and then uh, a source of inspiration. I think this is really, really important for us because, when you get down, when things are not looking good, when the chips are, you know, uh, uh, down, I guess they say, um, you need a light in the darkness. You need something. And, and that that could be the purpose or goal that we talked about a minute ago. But it also could there could be individuals and individuals, uh, inspirational people or inspirational uh, things are not goals or purposes. They are separate from that, right? They are they are things you they're role models. They're heroes. They are uh, things you can look you know strive to be like or attain without looking for a guru. Of course, you know me, and I'm not going to push you know some guru on you. But having sources of inspiration is really important for those times when you need it. Um, for me, it's people like Carl Sagan, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Um, Oh, gosh, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., right? I mean, these are very, very inspirational people. And they keep me centered and focused and going when I need help or when I need some kind of light in the darkness, right? And um, and as Leonard Cohen says, you know, no matter how dark things get, you know, there, there's there's always a crack, you know, in the darkness. And that's how the light gets in. It's what is a Leonard Cohen quote on that. So, um, so you have to have sources of inspiration. I guess Grant Cardone served as that for you in some capacity. And it's important to understand that Grant Cardone is a fake and his inspirational speak and motivational talks and all of that are, 
are not done from a place of, of, of honesty. And that's, that's the problem that I have with Grant Cardone is he is a shyster. Uh, he talks a good talk and he's very inspirational to people who are on this kind of plane where it's get yours and, you know, and, and, and you got to get yours and here's how you're going to get yours. And it's all about getting yours. You know, I don't, I don't really subscribe to that philosophy. So, um, so you want to find people who are, you know, a little more grounded than, than Grant Cardone, I think. Um, of course, that's just my opinion, but you know, it's, uh, it's an educated one. And speaking of the last point on my little post-it here is education. Okay, this is probably of all of them, I think is the most important, but um, but they're all super, super important. Okay, I don't really see any of these as optional. Um, if you want to have a, a life that's moving forward that you're in charge of, or at least you feel like you're in charge of most of the time, then you got to educate yourself. And education is going to be, uh, it's going to re, it's going to depend on you as to what you're looking for, as to what it is you should be educated on. But general subjects that are extremely helpful to know about are critical thinking. Uh, and if you want a, a primer on that, read A Demon Haunted World, The Demon Haunted World by Carl Sagan. Uh, absolutely brilliant book and, and really a good primer on critical thinking. Um, I, her, I personally believe that psychology is an important thing to know about, but that's just because that's where my interests lie. And I'm all about thinking about thinking and, and people, right? So I don't know what your interests are, but I do know that whatever they are, Education on that topic can only help you. It's difficult sometimes because sometimes you learn things that make things that you earlier thought, you know, you have this idea of how things are and then you learn some more things and you find out it's not that way. That can be rough. I mean, that can sometimes not be a fun experience. Knowledge is not always power. Sometimes knowledge is a burden. Um, I think Lex Fridman, uh, I think I retweeted him. He said something along those lines, but it, it, it is, it's true. Knowledge can be stressful. It can be a problem. You can have to resort things in ways you didn't expect or see coming. But at the end of the day, it's always better to have more knowledge than less and to have more of a grip or grasp of what the, the, the problems and the solutions are for the problems that you're trying to solve, okay, whatever the field or endeavor is. So um, I think psychology is good because most of our problems involve other people. And we don't generally understand each other very well. And I don't just mean the words that we use, but I mean actually understand other people like, who are they? Where are they coming from? Why do they say stuff like that? You know, between critical thinking and, and basic psychology 101 kind of stuff, you can get a long way with people and you can get a long way towards reducing your own stress and anxiety about yourself and about other people. Um, because the, the, the mystery of why people act the way they do and, well, you know, how to predict how they're going to act even, these things are resolved through lived experience and through education. You know, so I'll put those out there. And that's pretty much my answer for you. Um, I'm trying to give you things that you can do that are not external to you or that you have to go pay for or do something about. You can obviously get assistance through therapy or through counseling. Um, you can also do your own intern, you know, solo kind of work. There is a cognitive behavioral therapy that is that has workbooks and, and things like that. People have found some success with that, but not everybody. You know, it's a, you kind of have to make your own way through the world on this, and that's tough. I wish that there was some assembly line, factory production, here's how to self-improve everybody. And that's what Scientology pretends it is, and that's what Grant Cardone thinks he's got a hold of and he's so excited about. But, you know, it's a con, and, uh, and unfortunately, a lot of these prepackaged self-help solutions are in some way a con, you know, and it really, it, it, life is just not that well organized and put together by all of us yet. It's still very chaotic. It's still very random, our, our world and, and the way we navigate it. And so at the end of the day, you do kind of have to be your own, you know, your own judge 
and not be your own jury and executioner. <laughs> you see what I mean? Um, you know, give yourself a break from time to time, too. Don't, don't forget that. All right. I, I, I think that's the best advice I can give you in a very general sense, Bruno. I hope it helps. And do let me know if it doesn't or if you have there if I've mentioned something that you would like to hear more about or um, or I didn't hit it at all and you're looking for something else entirely, feel free to let me know. All right, thanks. Nick C. In a recent video, Aaron Smith-Levin stated that public Scientologists and staff members are told that Hubbard had no plans to return to Earth after he dropped the body. Rather, he is said to have gone straight to Target 2, where he awaits other Scientologists to join him. According to Aaron, Hubbard even wrote a directive to this extent. Aaron said he wasn't sure how this ties to numerous offices and homes the church maintains for Hubbard in anticipation of his return. Do you know anything of this apparent contradiction? I wouldn't put it past Hubbard to write two contradictory directives, but I am curious what you think. Okay, Nick, thank you very much for this question. And that is very interesting. I did not see that in, uh, in Aaron's videos, but uh, I would definitely disagree with him on that, and I'll tell you why. In fact, I'm going to read to you from the directive that Aaron talked about in his answer. Um, this is uh, something that all Scientology staff and Sea Org members, and in fact, really all Scientologists, are pretty familiar with. Uh, staff and Sea Org especially. We would chant this, we would recite this, we would be told this, we would talk about this. Excuse me, this was a uh, central, central thing the entire time I was a staff member. And it was only after I left that I think the birthday game, which you have heard me talk about um, and others, uh, has taken a bit of a, a, a less importance. But I, I could be wrong about that. But it seems that the birthday game is not as big of a deal as it used to be. But it was a very, very big deal. This was the central thing that we used to convince staff or to convince the public to come in extra, to pay more, to do more. It was all about the birthday game. It's about this game of expansion that goes on between the different Scientology orgs. If you've not heard of it, that's basically what it is. It's a game of expansion, and it's about getting the statistics up. And in playing the birthday game, this is a lot of the reason why a lot of the staff will stay up all night and the Sea Org will, you know, go hog wild crazy trying to get the stats up is it's all about the, the, the PR of it is it's all about the birthday game. Okay, so what did Hubbard say about this? Well, let me read a, a bit to you. I'm going to read a couple paragraphs to you because I want to give you the entire context of what Hubbard had to say about the, about the expansion and also the uh, target two and where Hubbard's at. And I'm going to read this to you, and then I'm going to kind of let you make up your mind about it, okay? And I'll give you my take on it, but here we go. Um, Hubbard writes, that, of course, the org networks expand and will continue to expand. The only question is how fast. Speed of expansion is the problem of management, and it is a problem. Let me give you some facts. This planet politically, is an anarchy of nations. These nations are armed with, of all things on a small planet, atomic weapons. This is catastrophe in the making in any whole track history book. To compound this, economic and social problems exist far beyond the norm for such a civilization, and these edge a political scene toward war. Now, there's a lot I could say about that, but I'm just going to gloss right over it right now. Um, we could really break this stuff down and critically analyze what Hubbard's talking about here. Because the, 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 anyway, but I just wanted to give you a flavor of how he talks to the staff and how he incites in them or inculcates in them this urgency, this need for speed and why we always have to be operating at breakneck, you know, runaway speed to expand Scientology. This is what he says. He goes on, and it isn't just atomic war. These same social and economic factors with their attendant rising stats of brutal crime and ideological pressure could bring about police states, as they are doing, in which no application of workable tech would be permitted and this whole civilization, as it has done before, 
could sink into a new dark ages that would swamp any forward motion toward freedom. And there are other factors which make speed imperative. We do not have any infinity of time to do the job. I mean, this is really quite brilliant writing on Hubbard's part because he's implying so much hidden knowledge about the past, about this planet, about what's normal on this planet. I mean, there's been so many things he has put here. Um, the future could make the past on this planet look like a holiday. But now another thing, and this is where we'll start getting into the Target 2 stuff. If it's this bad, one can say, why don't I simply race Dynamic 1, an individual, right, to get clear and OT and get off? Well, there are two answers to that. The first is that you wouldn't want, you wouldn't make it on your own. It takes an org and staff to administer the tech, and if there were no orgs and staff, it would be a very tough haul. And you don't want your planet and friends on your conscience. And you find me still around, don't you? Uh, so management has a real problem. Expanding fast enough to clear the planet. This is their basic concern with stats. This is why they tear their hair when your stats downtrend. No way, wrong direction. So what really is a birthday game all about? You are giving me and yourselves another giant step on the road to a cleared planet. And someday, how many birthdays later, you'll give me and yourselves and all your friends a cleared planet. And I'll go off with you to target two and we'll clear another one. And someday, way, way up the track, We'll have this universe back in native state and impervious to the faults and traps of yesteryear. But that's tomorrow and many tomorrows. Right now, the subject before us is this planet, your continent, your city, your org, you. Okay? So, you, like I said, you could break all that down and do quite a discourse analysis of how Hubbard has used incredibly uh, powerful language there to uh, create powerful emotional responses. And in the staff and Sea Org, he gets them. Uh, we used to recite this stuff. We used to chant this, these lines. I mean, I, th this is stuff I know pretty much by heart. I was just reading it out loud carefully here because I didn't want to miss, miss anything. But yeah, this is stuff I'm really, really familiar with. All of us were. And Hubbard said that he'll go off with us to Target 2 and we'll clear another one. To me... That pretty clearly puts there that he's here with us and we're going to go on to Target 2 together. Not that we're going to join him where he already is at Target 2. We're going to all go there together. So it seems to me the implication from 339R is that Hubbard is going to be around here and is going to go off with us after we clear this planet. That's the future that I thought would be uh, there. And I always thought in Scientology, when I was a Scientologist, that eventually I would end up meeting the guy. Not in his L. Ron Hubbard body, but in some future incarnation. But I imagine that I was going to eventually connect up with L. Ron Hubbard as a spiritual entity and be able to talk to him, you know, or, or uh, you know, when he got another body, right? So... Anyway, this is how I thought about things when I was a staff member and Sea Org member, and that's that's the reason why. So I hope that clarifies that and uh, gives you some more information about Scientology and how L. Ron Hubbard manipulates the staff and the public, uh, because that's that's how he does it. Matt Kordelski, if you could go back in time to about a year ago and murder COVID-19 patient zero and prevent the pandemic, would you do it? Okay, Matt, thank you for this COVID version of the uh, trolley problem or Hitler problem, I suppose, uh, the Hitler assassination question, right? If you could always go back and assassinate Hitler, uh, would you do it? Um, and for this question, I'm. Um, this is something I've actually given a bit of thought to. You asked me this a week ago. I wanted to sit on it for, for a little bit um, because it's a, it's a, you know, obviously a moral question uh, on the same line as the the, the the trolley problem or something like that. Um, my simple answer to this question is no, I would not. 
And the reason why is because, well, there are many layers to the reasons why um, I would not murder somebody to prevent a pandemic. One, um, you know, things like equation-like thinking or algorithmic thinking of moral principles is fraught with disaster for a number of reasons, one of them being that context always matters, always matters when it comes to questions of morality or ethics. There's no escaping it. There is no you know, formula you're going to apply that's going to be universally applicable in every case. Even the phrase, be good or be kind. I mean, these are relative terms, and they have everything to do with the viewpoint of the person who believes they are being kind versus the person who is at the receiving end of that. Maybe their interpretation of what's happening is that this is not kindness at all. So it's not, you know, so your intent is not the only thing that matters when it comes to questions of, of moral principles or, or ethical quandaries, right? Um, you know, first off, you, you put in the question correctly so, murder the COVID-19 patient zero. Well, that means that I have to now make the, um, you know, trolley problem like math or the utilitarian ethics math equation of, well, here's one life and here's 200,000 lives, and I'm going to be the one to decide that it's the moral, it's a morally sound thing to do to kill this innocent person so that 200,000 other, other people might live. Now, that sounds like it makes a lot of sense. I mean, numbers-wise, if you assume that every single human life is the same value as every other single human life, then that equation makes sense. But let's be real. Except on paper, when it comes to considerations of how the law should be applied or human rights should be applied to people, the fact of the matter is, in the real world, people are not equal, not even remotely equal. We are all radically different from one another, and we bring different value to different situations. I am useless in a shipwreck. <laughs> I bring no value whatsoever. But I am sure there are many emergency personnel, sailors, you know, these kind of people who have all kinds of value to bring to those situations. So I'm useless there. So maybe I'm surplus population in that situation. If you need somebody to do a cult intervention, I'm great. Right. So if you want somebody to talk about critical thinking, I'm OK. You know, I bring value, in other words, to those scenarios. So how do you externally not paying attention to any of this stuff judge the value of my life versus the value of nameless, faceless others? Right. How can we do that? You know, at the end of the day, this is why these kind of I guess, philosophy or ethics 101 type debate questions or these, you know, sort of moral quandaries that are presented are, we have to understand that these are not useless exercises, but they are uh, academic exercises. And in the real world, you've got way more factors at play than math when it comes to determining the relative value of any human life. And this is why judging this kind of thing is just, you know, really for the birds. Because um, here's the other problem with judging the value of a life is until that person has lived their life, how do you possibly know what they were or weren't capable of and what their potentials were, good or bad? And how do you judge that with any degree of certainty? You can't. You only have conjecture as to what you think this person's value is or isn't. And that creates a lot of problems, right? Because we try to categorize things into simpler, easier to think about ways. And this is where all these algorithmic ethical quandaries come from. Uh, and I said, they're not useless. They're interesting philosophical exercises. And they certainly can help clarify and bring some clarity to moral problems but they are not everything in and of themselves. And I, I, only, I only bring all this stuff up because I went, you know, diving into some of this in order to kind of give this question some real serious consideration. 
and also try to explain why my answer to the question is no, I would not go murder somebody because I don't know who that person is or what value they bring or will bring to the world at large. What if patient COVID, you know, patient zero of COVID-19 was a baby? I mean, we could start throwing so many questions at this that will make this an extremely difficult question to answer. You know, if, if you just run the pure math of it off the basis that, you know, every life equals every other life, then sure, obviously go murder this person. But I'm not doing that math that way because if you're really asking me this question, then it's not some academic ivory tower exercise. It's a real world question of would I go kill this person in order to, you know, potentially save all these lives? No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't do that um, because I just don't think that that's, I don't think murder <laughs> in that sense is justified. And I don't think we're in a position to be able to judge the relative value of one person versus another in the overall scheme of things. Not when it comes to life and death. I'll judge people's values all day long when it comes to their politics, their religion, their favorite books, their favorite movies. I mean, we can have talks about that that are, you know, that are not life and death matters. But when it comes to actual life, when you take a life, that's it. It's gone. It's never coming back. And that person will never be repeated in history. And maybe they've done horrible things and they shouldn't necessarily be around other people because the value they bring is negative. Serial killers, you know, you know, these kind of people, psychopaths. Um, but I still don't advocate for their murder. I still don't think killing them is the solution to that problem, right? Segregation, isolation, rehabilitation. I mean, there's a lot of things we can do for people. So I, I don't, I, this is why I'm not a proponent of the, for the death penalty. You know, I just don't think it's, it's the right thing to do. Viscerally, emotionally, I will get as riled up as anybody else in the moment. And I am just as capable of mob mentality as anybody else. So in an emotional moment, you might catch me going, yeah, kill that guy, right? Absolutely. A TV shows, my wife hears it all the time. But in the real world, okay, hang on, air brakes, right? Let's not be too hasty about this. And uh, maybe I'm going on at a mad rate about this, and this is much more than you needed to know, but this is some of the reasoning behind my thinking on that answer to that question. It's a good question. I wanted to give it a, a, at least a serious answer. And I hope that um, what I've said here might be food for thought, if nothing else. Jonathan Perry, I was listening to this week's Fair Game podcast with Leah and Mike Rinder, and their guest mentioned Sea Org officers are based on some people that took the overlord Xenu out of power after dropping the Thetans on Earth. I thought the Xenu myth ended there. I didn't know there was a lot more to the story. I'm having trouble looking it up. Do you know what supposedly happened after the Great Incident? Also, Leah mentioned about how they take your legal documents. Are there illegal immigrants on bases? Can the FBI investigate Scientology from a human trafficking angle? Okay, a lot of question there, Jonathan. I, what, what I can say about the Xenu mythology or story is that it pretty much does actually end with the, um, the, with the mass genocide. And then who, who they're talking about in the answer to your, in, in, in relation to your question about the Sea Org officers they're talking about loyal officers. Hubbard refers to this core of people that I guess were the equivalent of the Jedi Knights or something. I mean, these were like the police force or the guys who were in charge of maintaining order and peace uh, throughout the Galactic Confederacy, you know, 70 million, 76 million years ago. And these were the loyal officers. Who they're loyal to, I don't know. The state, I guess. Xenu was the guy in charge. He was the head. And uh, so they were supposed to be loyal to him, I guess. But I don't know, maybe there was a constitution or something they were loyal to. I mean, who knows? Hubbard's mythology doesn't really go into a lot of detail about this, actually. And all he really said about that I've know and read about after the genocide is that Xenu was captured by these loyal officers after he carried this whole thing out. And they locked him up in some mountain fortress with a, you know, a, battery that lasts forever or something, keep him in this cage. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so that's where Xenu is, and that's what that's all about. 
you know, I don't know if there's a lot more to the story. What I do know is that L. Ron Hubbard took people up on the um, uh, upper deck of his boat, of his ship, uh, back in the day when the Sea Org was still in its infancy. And he told them, he would show them when he, when he was uh, teaching celestial navigation, he would point to various stars and then he would just make up bullshit stories about how this star is this and, and we all were together there and in the past and now we're together again. And this is why the motto of the Sea Org is we come back. Because Hubbard thinks that the Sea Org's original core of people were the loyal officers from the Xenu story, right? I guess. I mean, that's kind of the implication. I don't know that he ever actually said that out loud, though. So I don't know which guest this was. I didn't hear this podcast, but I'm thinking that that's the story that, at least that I've heard of and know about. Okay. And then um, as far as the legal documents, yes, Scientology will take your legal documents. They do hold passports. They will take your ID if they feel the need to. Um, are there illegal immigrants on bases? No. Uh, people who immigrate in Scientology get R1 visas. Sometimes those R1 visas go over, but they generally will send the person back to their country of origin to get another one or get it renewed and then come back, uh, you know, or they'll work out whatever the situation is for that individual person. Um, but they don't, generally speaking, want illegal immigrants on base. They want legal immigrants on base. Um, but... Yes, the FBI can and absolutely should investigate Scientology for human trafficking violations because they are legion. And I believe it is human trafficking law that is actually going to nail cult leaders faster than any other kind of law. Uh, civil law, for sure. And uh, criminal law is, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's been proven to be difficult to prosecute David Miscavige for, let's say, assault. When the three people, four people, five people who have come out of Scientology that he assaulted all say, hey, this is what happened. Here's how it happened. Here's when it happened. And then 20 or 30 other people inside Scientology all give sworn signed affidavits that have legal force that all claim that those guys are liars and David Miscavige never assaulted anybody. That's the problem with trying to prosecute David Miscavige for something like assault, battery, or any, you know, host of other personal crimes that he committed one-on-one -on -one against another person. He's always got this whole cater of people who will swear on any stack of Bibles or Dianetics books that he was completely innocent of any wrongdoing and never, ever could have ever done anything wrong. And so the law is, tends to be rather powerless in the face of that for those one-on-one -on -one kind of accusations. But when you start looking at Scientology as an organization, and you start looking at it as a trafficking organization, and you start looking, you start framing it that way, you could start building up a case pretty quickly. Actually, I think that there is a, a mounds of evidence that you could pull up uh, that could be, you know, put together for that kind of a case. In the same way, Keith Raniere was uh, prosecuted on trafficking charges. That's how he ended up in jail for 120 years. So I think that that's definitely the route to go. And um, and I was convinced of that mostly through my university studies, where I actually had to read up on these laws and read up on human trafficking and, and how domestic violence is, is uh, regulated in the UK, for example, with their coercive control laws. And uh, and right now, cults are the wild, wild west when it comes to the law. There are very, very few countries that have any laws on the books about extremist groups. Um, and that's because the language and uh, ability to, to legally define what these things are or what abusive behavior is, what, you know, coercive control is. I mean, these are not easy things to put into writing. And that's only half the problem because the written law is one thing, how it's implemented is a whole nother thing. And it's a two-phase operation when you're talking about how laws are enacted. One, they're written. Two, they're actually in practice. They're put into practice. And that's when people have to start interpreting them. And, uh, and how they go about interpreting them might be quite different from how the law, people who wrote the laws intended for them to be interpreted. It can be pretty interesting how the law works that way. So... That's why um, 
I think that this is a it's that cult prosecuting cults has been a very very difficult activity. Um, but I do believe that under the trafficking laws is where we find the most uh, fertile territory to go after these groups. So, Travis, why is it that in Scientology you are not allowed to grieve when a loved one dies? That is cruel and heartless of the Church of Scientology organization to tell someone whose mom or dad died to stop dramatizing over a loved one's death. It's disgusting. Okay, Travis, well, it certainly is true that, you know, telling someone who is grieving that they should stop doing that because they're just being banky or Casey or, they you know, they should not feel that way is absolutely pretty disgusting behavior. Uh, it's very judgmental. It is very harsh. And it's very non or uncompassionate. Um, and that is what Scientology specializes in. But I wanted to take this question up. I, I took this up because I wanted to point out how... Um, maybe I should start, I don't know, maybe I should call this the six, nine problem or something like, you know, you can look at a six, but you can turn it upside down and then it's a nine. And you can, and if you lay it on the ground and you don't know which direction you're looking at it in, it can be a six or it can be a nine. Which one is it? Right. In other words, the same thing can mean two different, entirely different things to how, depending on how you're looking at it. And when we look at the six, nine problem in regards to this, I want you guys to understand that Scientology believes that it actually is compassionate, that it is empathetic, that you do care about the person when you tell them to stop dramatizing. That's how backwards it is in Scientology. That's how backwards, you know, kind of crazy mirror world it is there, is they have it that that this disgusting behavior is actually framed as compassionate good behavior because you, in Scientology, you are you. You're the spiritual entity, this, this Thetan, this, this, this infinite mass of potential and ability. And the only thing wrong with you is that you have been burdened and crushed down by all the weight of all the trauma and all the stress that you've experienced over all these countless trillenia. And when you are experiencing negative emotion like grief or fear or anger or hate, the reason you're feeling those things is because of the bank, because of the stress, the trauma, the, the, the engrams. That's why you feel that way. Not because you as a spirit actually miss this person, because as a Scientologist, you know that your dead mom, your dead dad, sister, brother, whatever, they're still alive as a spirit. They're, they're, they're fine. They haven't gone anywhere. They're not dead as a spiritual entity. And the spirit is the only thing that's actually alive in this entire universe. You see, this is the Scientology point of view about this. So all the negative emotion is just you basically, um, well, like they say, dramatizing. It's you allowing yourself to indulge in this negative emotion that really has its source in all these horrible, awful things that have happened to you in the past. And so the reason you're crying, the reason you're upset is not because it makes any rational sense, because it doesn't, because the, the, the person's not dead. They're, 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 the spirit is still alive. It's still going. They're, they have not disappeared at all. But the body's dead, so you're not going to be around them anymore as far as through that body. But it's just a body. There's, you've had billions of bodies. Bodies are a dime a dozen. Bodies don't mean anything. In the ultimate sense, that's how Scientologists think about this stuff. So this is why they are able to and are willing and, and, and go out of their way to actively suppress their own emotional experiences is because they have sold themselves on this bill of goods too. So it's not just a matter of somebody else telling you that your grief is meaningless and useless and it's just a dramatization. You actually run that on yourself too. It's, a, it's, it's part of the culture of Scientology. Now, everybody's different. So Different Scientologists are going to have bought into this idea at different levels. Not everybody buys into everything in the Scientology belief set, right? So some people are going to grieve, and they're going to go through a whole grieving process, and they're going to let themselves do that and be Scientologists, 
while others won't. Okay, it's really a matter of individual decision and 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 firmness of belief and and acceptance of this whole Thetan theory and all of that. That's so you're going to find different experiences within the world of Scientology, and at least at the public level, you're going to find a a hat tip to the the loss, the grief, the the needing to go through a process and move on. It's a lot less sympathetic in the Sea Org and on staff. They are much, much less sympathetic about those kind of things, much more buying into that hardcore view that I was just uh, sort of elucidating on or describing. So anyway, that's, uh, that's what's up with that. I hope that gives a little bit more clarity to where they're coming from. And I only put that out there, not because I'm trying to rationalize or justify or excuse away that abusive behavior, because let's face it, it is abusive behavior to tell somebody that they can't grieve. What I'm trying to do is show why they don't think it's abusive and why and 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 where their heads are at, just so you'll understand it better, not because I'm trying to make it make, you know, be okay. Okay, so anyway, I uh, hope that makes sense. There you go. All right, let's do some flash answers. Melanie Quint. Were Scientologists married in civil services or religious ones, or didn't it matter? Well, Scientology is a recognized bona fide religion by the state, so uh, at least in the United States and a few other countries, so they would be a religious service if they do a Scientology marriage. I'm sure there are Scientologists who have gone and gotten civil weddings only, but generally speaking, they like to do the Scientology ceremonies too. Santiago Rojo. Before David Miscavige took over, were there as many high-ranking members defecting? Yes, Scientology has been a rotating door of membership for as long as it's been around. Hubbard, remember, was not always a really super pleasant guy to be around, and he would piss people off, and they would just take off and leave as a result. A lot. So, uh, yeah, so that definitely did happen. There There were defections then, just like there are now under Miscavige. Kevin Zay. Given your intimate experience regarding the indoctrination tactics of Scientology, I was wondering if you might be able to offer a best guess as to how many SPs or ex-members may be physically out but mentally in. Well, Kevin, I think you're talking about independent Scientologists there, and I, I'm, you know, my best guess on this is a couple thousand people at the absolute most. I actually believe it's less than that. I think it's less than a thousand, but I'm trying to be generous and a little conservative in my thinking. Whenever I throw numbers around, I always go over. Um, but it, so in this case, you know, let's say worldwide, let's say there's 2,000 of them. That's my best guess. Uh, I think there are less, but um, yeah, there you go. Okay, guys, that is our show for this week. Thank you very much for coming around and listening to me blabber on at a mad rate here. I hope some of these answers were useful, helpful, and perhaps entertaining in some fashion. If you like the show and want to support it, uh, check out my Patreon or PayPal links below. And of course, please do like and subscribe to my channel and please do spread the the joy that is the Critical Thinking channel because this is good stuff and you critics out there are, you guys are the best and you're just awesome. So uh, anyway, see you guys next week. (laughs) Bye-bye.